Great. If you're visiting with us, I just encourage you to take one of those uh, cards and use your phone and fill out our connection card thing just to let us know that you're here and uh, maybe we can touch base over this coming week. But happy Thanksgiving to all those. And uh, it's a great time to slow down and to reflect upon much that God has blessed us with in this country. Much. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're continuing our sermon series looking at Acts. We're in Acts 1, verses 12 to 26. And as you get there, there's this time when I was in college. We, a few of us were in a house. We rented a house. And uh, actually, my soon-to-be wife was there too. Um, and I think there's a, f- a few other girlfriends at the time, which I don't think any of them married. But So we've, we made it. So that's a good thing. And uh, we were, all of a sudden, one of my roommates went outside of the front door, and our house was kind of on a hill. If you've ever been in Cambridge, it's all hilly and whatnot. And ours was on a hill, and on that hill, you had to walk up into the front door. So there wasn't anywhere else to go. If you wanted to get out, you had to get through that front door. And as the roommate walked out the front door, lo and behold, what was on the pillar there that held out part of the roof was a possum. And... If we all know possums, or a possum, I guess it's a technical word, uh, they, uh, we, uh, they get scared. And what happens when they get scared? They don't move. They just stay there. And then if you get really close, they, they start hissing, and they're ugly-looking things. I, I know that there's probably somebody here who thinks possums are cute, but I think they're giant rats. When the possum gets scared or they get stressed... They play dead. They just stop. There was a Yale School of Medicine study not too long ago that looked at how different genders reacted. So how do males react to stress and how do females react to stress? Lo and behold, they act differently. What a thought. In general, women are more likely to think and talk about what is causing their stress. Probably a lot more healthy. Women also are more likely to reach out to others for support and seek to understand the sources of their stress. Men, on the other hand, uh, typically respond to stress by using distraction. <laughs> what else can I do? A man often, men often engage in physical activities that can offer an escape from thinking about stref- stressful situations. So what is your reaction when something of the unknown happens? How do you react to your stress, to something that is unknown in the future? Here in Acts 1, verses 12 to 26, we see Jesus' followers react to this now what question. So if you have your Bibles, please open them, follow along with me. If you don't have one, uh, there's some Bibles under the seats in front of you. Please use that. If you don't have one, take it with you, bring it home, read it, start with the Gospel of John. But the word of the Lord says this in verse 12 of chapter 1 of Acts. It says this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. 
In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture has had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who came as guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered amongst us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood, which, is, which it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must, be, must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the chance we have to gather together to worship. And as we open your word together, this is a continuation of our worship. We worship with how we listen. So Lord, I pray that we would continue to worship you, to make much of you, to learn more of who you are and what you have done for us through your word. Lord, we thank you for this chance we have. So Lord, I pray that as we worship you, Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. God, I want to speak of you and praise your name. And God, I cannot do this on my own, so will you not make this turn out well by your Spirit? Help me to preach this sermon with what is necessary and appropriate. Use this sermon, Lord, above all, to bring glory to your name. Joy to your people and salvation to the lost. And amen. As we continue on in the series in verses 12 to 14, Jesus has just ascended to heaven, appearing to them, to the disciples and all those around them for 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And last week we took, took time to look at what it meant to be in the kingdom of God. What was Jesus talking about? About what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and how the Holy Spirit indwells the believer and seals him or her with Christ, and we are brought into the kingdom of God. In verse 12, the disciples' plan was to obey Jesus. Jesus has just told the disciples who are there, Go and wait in Jerusalem until this time when the Holy Spirit will come on you, and we will get to that in next chapter. But it was about a Sabbath day journey, which is about one kilometer from where they are to where they were going to go. And sometimes I wonder, as I was reading this text, what were they talking about as they were walking back? They just saw Jesus, who they had spent three years with, suddenly float to the sky. 
what will you be talking about? And this person, this Jesus, God, Savior, told them, this isn't the end. You're going to take this, this message about me on my mission to go to the ends of the earth. And let us not forget how the men at this time, these disciples are described. And we can even see further in Acts how they're described as unlearned people. They're not uh, the academics. They're not the special ones. In verse 11, the two men that showed up and said, hey, what are you, why are you guys still staring up at the sky? Calls them men of Galilee. Essentially, these two men say to the disciples, you're country folk. And here's the thing, in Jerusalem, Jerusalem people would have known that. You know, Jerusalem's a big city, right? With all the smart people, with all the educated people, with all the wealthy people. And those guys are the country folk that took care of the fish. So what were they talking about? Amazement, awe, wonder? I could imagine the weight. What does this mean for the rest of my lives? Jesus said that they will be his witnesses for all they saw to the ends of the earth, and that is a mind-blowing thing. How is this even possible, and what does this even mean for the rest of their lives? And of the apostles that were listed as we continue on in verse 13, we only, only Peter and James and John are mentioned again in Acts, but they go to this upper room to be obedient to Jesus' commands to do what? To wait. To wait. And wait for what? The Holy Spirit. And it's not just them. It's also Jesus' mother, Mary, and the brothers. On a side note, and this is an important doctrinal statement, Mary had other children. She wasn't perpetually a virgin. Last I checked, in order to have children, you need to have something. <laughs> just saying. I just realized there was children here, so <laughs> go talk to your parents. So they waited. This is where we find them. We find them in this upper room. This is what they're doing. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and to give them the power to enable them to go and complete the mission that God, that Jesus has sent them on at this moment. But right now, they're waiting. They knew just to go to Jerusalem and to wait. They didn't know what was going to happen at the Pentecost because that's not until the next chapter. The coming of the Holy Spirit. But they weren't just waiting, as we see. There, there was something else that they were doing that was very important in their waiting. In verse 14, these all were of one mind because they were praying together. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. The first thing they do when they show up at this upper room is they get together and they do what? They pray. They don't sit in a circle and fuss and muss and stress out about whatever's going to happen. What do they do? They pray. And as they're praying, they are of one mind, continually devoting themselves to that prayer. And this picture into the church we see just after Jesus' ascension is a picture of a church praying. The first thing we see is a church praying. 
And Jesus started that pattern of prayer for the lives of his disciples back in the Gospels. You see it over and over and over again. He prays. He takes time to get away and he prays. It's funny how sometimes we struggle the most with prayer. I do. But the Gospels are full of examples of Jesus setting the example, and you see the example continuing on in the life of the early church throughout Acts as they gathered together to pray. But what were they praying about? We don't know. We don't know. The text doesn't say, so let's not put it in there. But with Jesus' ascension and Jesus' promises of sending the Holy Spirit, you can probably imagine what was going on and what they were praying about. I know what I would be praying about. Prayer was an important part for them as a community. There's a man named Ian Bounds that put it so well. The life, power, and glory of the church is prayer. The life of its members is dependent on prayer. And the presence of God is secure and retained by prayer. The very place is made sacred by its ministry. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. So why is a church or an individual Christian lifeless and powerless without prayer? I don't know how many times I've been rebuked about this. How many times I just flippantly just, you know, dear Lord, please do this, please do that. I want to be a man of prayer. In fact, it's in my job description. I once had an elder, uh, this was many years ago, and he would say this all the time when we had an elders meeting. He said, at the beginning of the meetings, every time, he says, if the only thing we ever did was pray, that was a good meeting. If the only thing we did was pray, they got so late into the night that we couldn't do any other business, that all we did was pray, that was good enough. Not only was it good enough, that was the best. You know, sometimes I think as uh, pastors or whatever, elders, individuals, we get so caught up in the hustle and the bustle of life and we forget the most important thing of our life is to pray. I need to do this. I need to do that. When it comes to prayer, prayer should be for the Christian like breathing. It's easier to do than not to do. And what is it, what we see in this early church doing their praying. And why do we pray? We see in Luke 2, it says to pray, prayer is a form of serving God and obeying him. We pray because God commands us to in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says to continue to pray without ceasing, to keep going. And we pray because Jesus prayed and so did the early church. If Jesus thought it was important, we really should. We pray because God uses prayer to be the means of attaining, obtaining his solution in any situation. We pray because even if it's not answered the way that we want it to be answered, it's not in vain. We pray because God says that when we pray according to his will, he gives us what we ask for. I can't tell you how many times God has answered my prayers. I started a prayer journal years ago. And not too long ago, I had this mind-blowing situation. I was praying for something very specific. And like two days later, God answers that. And I'm writing in my journal, and I got this big arrow across the, 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 what do they call it? Binding. Look, God, you answered this. 
I think it was Al Mohler that talked about this. In one sense, prayer is like sharing the gospel with people. We do not know who will respond to the message of the gospel until we share it. In the same way, we will never see the results answered prayer unless we pray. When we have a prayerless life, it shows a lack of faith and a lack of trust in God's word. I want to be a man of faith. I want to trust God more. That God will indeed keep his promises. We pray to show our faith in God that, we will, that he will do exactly, without a shadow of a doubt, what he promised he will do. As Ephesians 3.20 says, Blessed are, Bless our lives abundantly more than we could ask or hope for. Prayers are primary means to seeing God work in other people's lives. How can we see God working if we don't bring the request to him and then see him at work? The biggest example of this is, Lord, please call that person to yourself. That's the biggest one, by the way. I miss out on the blessing of God actually achieving that and doing that. On our own, we are powerless to defeat Satan. But when we pray, it's like we are plugging into the power source of God's power to defeat Satan and his armies that we are powerless to do on our own. It's because of all of this that the early church prayed. So when God finds you and I, may he find us together on our knees before the throne of grace. Because God answers prayer. He may not do it the way we want. That's a whole other sermon, by the way. But I am reminded of Hebrews 4, verses 12, or 15 to 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's even more. When we pray, because in James 5, it says God promises that the fervent prayer of the righteous person does a lot. And when we believe in God enough to come to him in prayer, that brings him glory. Without prayer, the church is lifeless and powerless. And they did this as the passage continues on in one accord. The Greek word there means that they were praying in unity together. The word here puts this huge emphasis on togetherness. And they were united together with one mind and one purpose. And this characterized this young church community. They were in disagreement. There was an agreement, sorry. There was an agreement among them as to what was to be done. And what they did was they stopped, they waited, and they prayed. And they were united both outwardly and inwardly. I go back to Jesus' prayer in John 17. And you see it being fulfilled right here, right now. The glory that you have given me, Jesus says, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. That's a huge statement. It's being answered right here. They were all praying, all the people listed together. They were waiting, obeying Jesus' commands and praying. And we need to do the same. We need to be obedient to our commander and our chief, the one who is our example, our Lord and our Savior, as he said. And we need to pray. And they devoted themselves to it. They prayed with persistence. 
The ESV uses devoted, the NIV uses constantly, the NASB uses continually, whatever the word you want to put in there, they did it persistently, meaning they didn't stop. Now, they did take breaks, I'm sure, to eat or whatever. But you get the points. Coupled with obedience, they prayed. Colossians 4, 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So when we feel like we are cornered, like there's no other reaction to go, when we feel like there's, I don't know what to do, what is your reaction? I think we forget that it is God's method to drive us into a corner to pray for the very blessing he intends to give us. Matthew Henry put it this way, commenting on the struggle of the Israelites in Egypt's captivity, wrote, Before God unbound them, he put it into their hearts to cry unto him. Even the Apostle Paul cries out to God for him to remove something from him. In 2 Corinthians, from his life, and Jesus' response isn't exactly what Paul was looking for. But but his grace was sufficient for Paul. God used the situation to do what? To drive Paul to prayer. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more, as Paul continues on, gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the early church prayed together continually, not around the clock, The people waited patiently for Jesus' promise to be fulfilled, but they did that with constant prayer. The disciples went to Jerusalem because they were told to wait, and in their obedience they also prayed. And what a beautiful picture of the early church, waiting for God, and in their obedience, waiting, praying, and resting in him. God has made a promise, and that promise didn't lessen their need to pray. I love how John Calvin put it. Prayer is not a sign of doubting, but it is a witness to a certain hope and confidence since we ask the Lord for things that we know he has promised. So I'm not praying, God, please give me a Mercedes. Okay? That's, that's ridiculous. We can joke about that. I'm praying according to what God has promised. And in order to know what he has promised, you need to be a person of the word. You need to know what God has promised so that you're not getting all disappointed that God hasn't answered your prayer for that new Mercedes. Prayer is not a sign of doubting, but it is a witness to our certain hope and confidence. God is sovereign. And what he has done and will do with certainty does not stop us from praying. It's because of those promises that we can cry out to God. Like even in our evangelism method, Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail. So we can pray with boldness, God, may your kingdom increase here in London. May, may, may people come to know you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, give me peace during this hardship. Help me get through this. Strengthen me. Lord, I'm tempted. I really would love to look at that thing right now. Give me strength. 
They knew something was going to happen, but they still prayed. So for you and I, we may know something is going to happen that should keep, that should keep us praying and encourage us to pray. Pouring out our hearts to God is a sign of our need for his help in the task that lies ahead of us. When we spend time in reflective and petitionary prayer, it is time well spent. It's funny, right? Uh, pastorally, people might ask, oh, so what are you doing all week? And, you know, if your schedule is not full of meetings, they feel like you failed. I fail if I don't pray. That's where I fail. I fail my family. I fail my church. How much more important it is for us, too. We need to be people of prayer. And what came out of that praying was a sense of, of a need. Something became clear to them, as we see in verses 12 to 26. And it's interesting to see the leadership role that Peter takes on here, okay? This is, this is weird stuff, because not too long ago, we see him doing something very different. This is actually a role that keeps going on until actions gear from Peter to the Apostle Paul. And what amazes me about this is the backdrop. Let us not forget that Peter was the man who denied Jesus three times, Now, I don't say this as a point of shame on Peter. Don't hear that. I point to the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. Here's a man who denied Jesus three times, yet he's now taking leadership. Like, imagine the shame that he would have felt and what it took to stand up in front of those 120 people and soon to be 3,000. How quickly are we to give up on someone and how quickly we can give up on ourselves? But here's the man who denied Jesus who is now taking the lead. Jesus had restored Peter personally, which we can read back in John 21. And this is a different kind of leader than what we've seen, that we've read about. A change like this can only be explained as something supernatural. Life wasn't about him being personally satisfied or him being comfortable anymore. His whole goal in life was to make much of Jesus and not himself. See, the Bible had become central to Peter of his assessment as he looked at what is happening, what is going through their minds with Judas And they look to the word, and Peter plunders the scriptures to find out what God has taught and showed a ready willingness to obey it. And Peter had changed. He was no longer the same person. He was a different person. He had grown as a disciple even before the Holy Spirit had come in his power. The early church is in the days between that ascension and that Pentecost, those days of waiting which is about a 10-day period of time. We see the list of people in this room praying together and all the disciples minus Judas, who Luke clearly calls a traitor, by the way, and refers to his wickedness. And here Peter stands up and he starts talking to them about a need that needs to be placed. So Peter talks to his fellow disciples to replace the man who had betrayed Jesus with another man. Why is this important? I like the Perinthius that Luke puts in here. He kind of inserts some narrative to help explain what is going on. Simply, the word of the Lord need to be fulfilled. Again, God's promises need to be fulfilled. 
And Jesus talks about Judas doing just what he did. And back in Luke 22, he says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what it is written about me has its fulfillment. And again, as he walked along the street unknowingly with his disciples, in Luke 24, he, he says to those disciples, O foolish ones and slow hearts of believing all. Well, that's nice that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, Judas's actions, let us not forget, were a fulfillment of God's divine plan of salvation for you and for me. This is just another piece of evidence saying that none of this was an accident. And what's neat here is we get to see a great example and probably the clearest statement in the Bible that talks about how the Holy Spirit inspires people to write the Word of God. As we see with King David 2,000 years before, as he prophesies about Jesus' betrayal and the need for a replacement of Judas. But don't overlook the trauma that these people would have felt. Three years they walked with this guy. They broke bread together. They had life together. And suddenly he's the one that's marching soldiers and servants of the high priest to betray Jesus. Satan had filled Judas's heart so that he could try and destroy what Jesus was going to build in his new community, his church. But Jesus' promises will still stand. The gates of hell will not prevail. So for Peter, there was a need to replace Judas because this is what the Bible taught. But how would this be accomplished? Through a praying community. They prayed. And verses 18 and 19 is, is, an ad, is the added narrative that we see. And I want you to see this because it's important contrast between Peter who stands up and declares this news of what they need to do in prayer with what Judas did. Peter denied Jesus three times, yet here he's leading people, and there's a different type of grief that we see here. Peter's drove him to Jesus. Judas's grief drove him to kill himself in a very public way. Judas received what was due him, 30 pieces of silver for denying and betraying Jesus. He gave up everything for a few pieces of silver. What is that in today's money? A few thousand dollars? But Judas, in that process, lost money, the field. He lost his life. And Judas's betrayal of Jesus just showed that what was truly in his heart. There's this old German hymn that I just found out about called, Ah, Holy Jesus, that says this. Who was guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. T'was I, Lord Jesus, it was denied thee. I crucified thee. So I look at Luke's account of Judas and what has happened to him because his, and I often ask, well, what sins am I capable of without the working of the Holy Spirit in my life? The Bible is clear. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners capable of anything. But Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose again. 
Jesus Christ steps down from his throne to pay the price for his people's sins so that when we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we will be saved. So let's not look down on Judas or even try and, 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 and flip that with some more sympathy. Let us be reminded that we have our own stories of betrayal of Jesus Christ. That we betray Jesus every time we go to anything else but Jesus to satisfy the longing and the desire. Judas' story is an example of trying to gain the world by selling his soul. Let us remember that if it, is, if it wasn't for God working in our own lives, we would be in the same situation as Judas. Let us praise our awesome God and stand in awe and wonder of what he has done for us. There are only two options. Either you are in Christ or you're not in Christ. Either you are resting in what Jesus did on the cross or, or you're not. And Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. Do you believe that? Are you resting in that? Are you leaning into that? Judas didn't. Peter did. But the death of Judas isn't even the main point. It's the problem that came from his death. They were down one man. They were down one man. So how do they get about the process of finding a replacement? The community prayed. That is foundation. And then there was a nomination process. In verse 21 to 22, two men were picked based on fulfilling the necessary requirements of seeing, of, 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 of witnessing, of, of being with Jesus the whole time. Why is that so important? Because they will be part of the 12 who will go out being witnesses of what Jesus has done, that he indeed rose from the dead, that he ate bread, had fish, was a great barbecue or maybe, I don't know. All of these things. And why did, just, why did all these things happen? Because Christ died for our sins and rose again. So two men, and maybe only two men in that group were available, met those requirements, Matthias and Joseph. And after they found the men that met the requirements, the second step happens. They pray. Remember, this is before the Holy Spirit comes, okay? So what do they do? They revert back to the Old Testament way of doing things. So they took Matthias' name. They took Joseph's name. Maybe they carved it on a stick or a stone. They got someone's hat, if they had hats. They put it in there, shook it up. I was watching Dude Perfect yesterday. If you ever watch Dude Perfect, they do this. And then someone sticks their hand in and picks out a name. After prayer, after petitioning God, because God is sovereign over all things, the name that comes out is Matthias. Without looking, someone calls in there and pulls out that name. The choice of Matthias is based on prayer, devotion, and waiting on God. God had his divine sights on these actions as he began to fulfill his promise that he will build his church. We may look at this method and maybe even snub our nose at it, but God used it to sovereignly fulfill his plan for his word to continue to increase. 
is a great reminder of God's provision for you and for I. That means no matter how small or how big we view a certain circumstance or, or some sort of event in our lives, God is sovereign over that and watches with a divine eye. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. I had to do it in King James because that's how I memorized it. So as much as God is sovereign over the daily bread, he's also just as sovereign over the sparrow. Jesus says in Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet our heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? That's why Jesus continues on in the same chapter. He says, therefore, what? Do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And just as God provided in those ways, as, as God worked through the church, as they prayed and they waited, he will provide for his disciples to elect Judas's replacements. One commentary put it this way, in daily bread or the death of a sparrow, the care of the provision of God is to be viewed with no less certainty than the election of a prime minister or provision of a life partner. So what? What's your response when stressful situations happen? The disciples just witnessed this amazing act of Jesus ascending into heaven after spending 40 days with them. Couple that with the crazy events that happened with the crucifixion. All of these things that have happened. As Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives them this promise of the Holy Spirit. They went to Jerusalem to wait as Jesus commanded. But as the disciples waited, they prayed. Before they acted, they prayed. As they acted, they prayed. Prayer is a foundational act of the church as God uses them as his means to accomplish the mission of Jesus to spread the message about Jesus. When we read Acts, we will see some amazing things that God will do, but don't let that distract you from the point of Acts, how the word of the Lord continues to increase. God sovereignly uses his church as his means to accomplish the mission of Jesus, to spread the message about Jesus. And as the disciples obeyed, they prayed. In the fulfillment of what God said in the past, they prayed. And we will continue to see that throughout this book. They prayed the promises of Jesus resting in him. Why? Because the life of our church is dependent on prayer. Let us be a praying church. Sometimes we see a problem. At least men generally do this. We we, we see a problem, and what is the first thing we do? How can I fix this? We get up and we're like, let's do this. We roll up our sleeves, let's get her done. Instead of stopping and maybe just taking some time to pray about it a little bit. Yes, go and do what Jesus commands, but let's do it as a church dependent on prayer because without prayer, we are powerless and lifeless. We got a glance into the church's first action after Jesus' ascension. They pray. 
They were faced with a situation of replacing a disciple after that disciple betrayed Jesus. But at each step, they did something that they knew they had to do, which was pray. The disciples are praying in light of what Jesus promised. For you and for I, this is a great reminder that God's promises and prayers go hand in hand. Let's not forget that our God makes promises and he is the promise-keeping God. That makes those promises certain. The Bible, I talked about this yesterday at the funeral, the Bible talks about hope a lot, and it's not in terms of I hope something may happen. Hope in the Bible is a certainty. That makes these promises certain. And even though he is a promise-keeping God, he calls his people to a life of dependence in relationship with him. So we pray. See, God calls those who are in Christ believers to bring their request to him like a good, like a child with a good father. The picture we have of the church is that they prayed and they took the time to make that an important part of their lives because the church, the life of the church is dependent upon prayer. I want to encourage you about a few things because I need to grow in prayer and as do you. And if you ever say you're good at prayer, Just keep going. We pray every Sunday morning in that room over there. We pray for our service. We pray for our kids' workers, our nursery workers. We pray for other churches here in our city. We pray for our service, for our music, for our preaching. We pray. Every members' meeting, we pray. If you're a member of this church, I strongly encourage you to show up on the 16th. Is that strong enough? Because we come to pray together. I encourage you to do that and to hear about what God has done and maybe even some of the concerns that we have to pray together as a community. We also have another prayer gathering that's coming up this month in October 23rd where we will be spending time praying together at 4 o'clock. It's still light outside, so if you're scared about the night, you can still come. Let's be a church, a praying church. Let's take the example of Jesus, the example we see of the early church. Let's apply it to our lives. Let's not just pray individually, but let us pray together on our knees, boldly going before the throne of grace together. Because the life of our church is dependent upon prayer. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you.